0: Good morning, it's so good to see you. Ephesians chapter five, if this is your first time among us, we're doing a verse by verse study of the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter five, and we're calling this series More Than Sundays, because I don't know if you realize this, but being a Christian is about more than Sundays. Yeah? I mean, it's something you take with you. It's not just something you do, yes? Because if you haven't learned that yet, I need to start and repeat and just go back about three weeks, four weeks, but we don't need to do that, yeah? Because you see, being a Christian, it really is about more than something you do, it's something you are, it's taking it with you beyond the hour and a half you're here on Sunday. I wanna say thank you for an amazing day yesterday. I'm telling you, preachers are prone to exaggerate. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to embellish anything, because we're prone to, I'm just telling, I try not to do that, but I think it was probably our largest carnival ever. Like probably, I'm serious, probably 10,000 people. From all over our city was there. I met people from all over the Kansas City metro. And so thank you for the hundreds and hundreds that served, for the hundreds and hundreds of you that donated things to do what we do, to be living proof of a living God to a watching world. having said that, I got to be honest with you about something, seriously. Uh, My heart is pretty heavy today. And it is what I call a PG-10 sermon, just want to warn you ahead of time. My heart is heavy, it's been heavy. It's been heavy for several weeks, knowing this text was coming, the passage we're studying, the sermon that I'm about to bring. It's not an easy sermon to preach. It may not be easy to listen to, but we need it. It's God's Word, it's the truth that sets us free. My heart is heavy for our country, it's heavy for our society. My heart is heavy for the church because as the church goes, so goes the nation. And where the Apostle Paul is taking us in our series, More Than Sundays, he wants us to understand that being a Christian is more than the hour and a half you come to church, that it's more than putting on your Sunday best and your new Sunday dress and putting on your best behavior for an hour and a half and then everything goes back to normal by Monday. It should change our lives. to change the way we live. Change us to become like him. And that's where we're headed in Ephesians chapter five. God's children, that's us, As God's children, God's desire is for us to be like him. He saves us to change us. He adopts us into his family to give us a brand new identity and i want you to see his goal for your life is romans 8:29 to be conformed to the image of his son the sinless son of god came like one of the sons of men so the sons of men could become like him that is god's goal that's the process of sanctification of becoming more and more like christ and this is what he says as we pick it up in ephesians 5 and verse 1 he says therefore because we are god's children be imitators of god he wants us to imitate him to be Be like him, he came to live inside of you at the moment of salvation to change you, to make you increasingly, gradually like him. Now, how do we do that? He says, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, what's in view here is one of the offerings of the ancient Hebrews. They had five offerings. He's speaking here of the burnt offering. They would take this lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and they'd sacrifice it on the altar. It would be completely consumed in the fire, completely reduced to ash. All of that was a picture of Jesus Christ, God's sacrificial lamb, God himself became came a man to become our sacrificial lamb and he was completely consumed on the cross in the fire of God's wrath as a sweet smelling aroma and I want you to see that Paul is now teaching everything that Jesus became for us we are now to become for him. We are to offer our lives to him as a sacrifice unto him. Romans 12 and verse 1, a living sacrifice. My life is no longer my own. I have been bought with a price. Now I want you to understand what that means. To be like God means to be like Christ who was full of grace and truth. Now I share this because we live at a time where people want the grace of God, but they don't really want the truth of God. No, we want God's grace, but we don't want to live by God's truth. And we almost see these guys like, you know, grace is good cop, truth is bad cop. All right, you got, uh, you know, good dad, mad dad. That's how we look at grace and truth. But I want you to see that Jesus fully embodied grace and truth. John 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1, 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to see Jesus fully embodied grace and truth, never one without the other. And we live at this time where honestly, people want the grace of God, but they don't really like the truth of God, and apart from the truth of God, you cannot live in the grace of God. You see, the reality is you hear this false dichotomy all the time. Well, we, we need to be more about grace. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, you need equal balances of grace and truth. That's just not true. It's like, you know, you need 50% of grace and 50% of truth. That's just silly. That's a false dichotomy. Jesus was 100% grace and 100% truth at all times. He fully embodied them. These aren't competing with each other. They are completing each other. And what that means is if Jesus is in us, then what else is in us, what else is in us is grace and truth. And it doesn't mean that it's one without the other. It can't be one without the other. And truth in our day and age is sometimes seen as the bad guy, and grace is seen as the good guy. But did you know that it's not grace that sets us free from sin? It's truth that sets us free from sin. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, it's the truth that sets us free from sin. See, truth isn't the bad guy. Without truth, we believe the lies of society, we believe the lies of the enemy, and it's the lies of the enemy that takes us into slavery and captivity. It's truth that sets us free and gives us life abundantly, a life lived with liberty. You see, the reality is a lot of us have Hannah B's theology. Now, some of us here, I'm sure, are familiar with Hannah B. She is, of course, Miss Alabama star of season 15 Bachelorette. She is an outspoken Christian, and I don't watch The Bachelorette for several reasons, but I do keep my ear close to the ground. I know what cultural phenomenons are and what cultural you know things are going on. This is a cultural phenomenon, The Bachelorette. And you may be aware, maybe you're not, that there was no small dust-up between her and a contestant named Luke. In season 15, Luke, who himself says he's a Christian, says he's saving himself for marriage, and he would like the woman he's going to marry to save herself, too. And this completely offended Hannah B. How dare him tell me what to do with my body? She's openly admitted she's had sexual relations with several contestants on the program. And as a Christian, she said this, I can do whatever. Whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. Now Hannah B. is simply the result of a modern American theology that's not really true Christianity. This isn't her fault that she thinks she can do whatever because Jesus still loves me. She's simply the product of a church culture in America. I want you to understand something. God's love is not a license for sin. Yeah, God loves us unconditionally. He loves us sacrificially. Ephesians 5.2, Jesus gave himself an offering and a sacrifice for us. But we've turned love into license. I want you to see that Hannah B's theology is really the theology of modern Christianity in American society. But that is not Paul's theology. You see, the reality, listen carefully, is we've been saved by grace, and it's because of grace that we've been saved but where grace did abound, listen carefully, it's not a license to keep on sinning. All right, Ephesians, or should say Romans 5 and verse 20 says this, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. In other words, there is no sin you could commit that God cannot forgive. There is no sin too great where God's grace is not greater. So the Apostle Paul anticipates Hannabe's theology, which is a lot of our theology, and he answers that question in Romans six and verse one. What shall we say then, since you know, grace abounded much more than sin abounded, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly not. Everybody say, certainly not. All right, there's the Apostle's theology as opposed to Hannah B's theology, which is the modern American church theology. He says, certainly not. He says, if you think you can continue sinning because you've had grace for your sin, you've distorted the whole idea of grace. Grace, you see, is meant to forgive you of your sin. How can we who died to sin live any longer therein? I want you to see the reality as a child of God. Listen very carefully. He has given us the grace to be forgiven of sin, and ultimately, it's freedom that sets us free from sin. You have truth and grace. It's truth that sets us free, and it's grace that brings us forgiveness. So that we don't continue sinning again and again and again and again. That there is a struggle against sin. And yes, we all face temptation, but none of us can say, I can do whatever. And honestly, if that's your attitude towards sin, listen carefully. You need to examine, have a little introspection, your own salvation. Because it is impossible for the Holy Spirit to live in you and continue living purposely and willfully an unholy life. It's an impossibility theologically. For those that have a cavalier attitude towards sin, because Jesus loves me unconditionally, I can continue to sin and sin and sin and sin over and over and over again. I want you to understand that ultimately he's saying it's about more than Sundays. It's about coming and not just putting on your Sunday best and putting your best foot forward for an hour and a half and singing all the songs and clapping at the right times and acting a little churchy just to go out again and do the same old sins over and over again. Now he's going to tell us as he tells the Ephesians, what does this look like in our life? First of all, he says, as a child of God, there should be no sexual immorality in our lives. Immorality and Christianity are incompatible. It's incompatible. To change the way you live. And this is what Paul now tells the Ephesians in verse 3. Look at it. But fornication... And uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. I want you to see God, because you're in Christ, no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. He sees you as holy and blameless and sinless already positionally. And his desire is that you pursue that practically and daily. So he says, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, it shouldn't even be named among you as in the church. Fornication, this is the Greek word pornia. Does that sound familiar? From which we get the word pornography or porn. It's a generic term for sexual immorality. Uncleanness, that's impurity. See, to God there's only clean and unclean. There's pure and impure. There's not different levels of sin. There's not different levels in general 50 shades of gray. It's just black or white. It's either holy or unholy. He says, if it's unholy, let it not even be named among you. Now listen carefully. There's not one among us that doesn't struggle with sin. We're all made of the same stuff, which is mean we all struggle with the same stuff. But listen, I don't, I don't worry as a pastor about those who say I'm a Christian and I'm struggling with sin. I worry about people who say I'm a Christian and sin with no struggle. That's the world we live in. Well, Jesus loves me. I can do whatever. No, that's somebody that doesn't really know Jesus. If that's really your attitude towards sin, the desire is to be like him. And he says, therefore, let no fornication, all unclean, is covetous net. let it not even be named among you. Now, this is why Paul is writing to the Ephesians. Ephesus, was one of the greatest cities in all of antiquity, it was home to the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its size and scope were enormous. These are people in the artist's rendering. Just to give you an idea, those little things look like ants, those are people relative to the size of the temple of Diana. And you can see why it's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people from all over the Roman world will go to the temple of Diana to make a pilgrimage, to worship in the temple of Diana. Who was Diana? Diana was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of sexuality. The Greeks called her Aphrodite, same goddess. The Canaanites called her Ashtaroth. And they would worship her through prostitution and acts of promiscuity. They would go into this temple and it would lift. be an orgy 24 7 365 hundreds and hundreds of rooms in the temple of Diana where hundreds and hundreds of priests and priestesses would service the worshipers with ritualistic acts of prostitution and perversion they were worshiping this goddess this multi-breasted goddess pornography is not a modern invention of humanity Now listen, we are far too sophisticated to set a multi-breasted statue in our home somewhere and worship this multi-breasted goddess. No, we're way too sophisticated. But I would suggest to you that while the temple of Diana was destroyed hundreds of years ago, I want you to know that her spirit is still alive in these United States today. And we worship Aphrodite in the privacy of our bedroom by clicking on pornography. We worship Aphrodite when we go to the chat rooms and we talk to men that we know we shouldn't because we're married. We worship Aphrodite in various ways today and all forms of sexual immorality. I want you to see the irony is the Apostle Paul is writing to former pagans who had become Christians. These are people who formerly worshipped in that pagan temple. They took part in these ritualistic religious acts of prostitution and now he's saying now that you're a Christian let it not even be named among you. Everything is now changed. It ought to change you. And the irony, listen, the United States, Western civilization is built on a Judeo-Christian foundation. Now, the Ephesians were pagans. They were a Greco-Roman culture. I want you to see how it was Christianity that changed a Greco-Roman culture to a Judeo-Christian culture. That is why Western civilization has a different worldview and different moral values. And it changed all of Western civilization wherever Christianity got a foothold. A, a Greco Roman culture said several things. First, there is no truth, there are no absolutes. You remember, Jesus, as he spoke to Pilate at his trial, Pilate looked at Jesus and said, What is truth? See, as a Greco Roman, he'd been taught there is no truth. That was Greek philosophy. Now, as a Judeo-Christian culture, we say truth is absolute. There are truths, they are absolute, they're never changing. I want you to see the difference between the Greco-Roman culture and the Judeo-Christian culture. Now, the pagan culture of the Greco-Romans, what was its sexual ethic? It was have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, as many times as you want. It was an anything-goes mentality toward human sexuality. Judeo-Christian culture? Oh, no. We practice monogamy in marriage, and that is why ultimately what happened, wherever Christianity got a foothold in the Western Hemisphere, it changed the worldview, it changed the moral values. Now, I want you to see the irony. All of that is changing now in Western civilization. We're going from a Judeo-Christian culture back to a Greco-Roman culture. Because we now live in a world that says, oh, there are no absolutes, there is no truth, which of course is just silly. Not only is it unbiblical, it's illogical. Did you know that gravity is an absolute truth? 300 million Americans can reject the truth of gravity and it does not change a thing. What goes up will come down. 300 million Americans can suddenly decide, oh no, that's not true, and guess what? 300 million Americans are gonna be wrong. There are scientific truths, they're irrevocable. Uh, there's mathematical truth, guess what? Five plus five will always equal? Oh man, this is an advanced class, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it'll never equal nine, it will never equal 11. You know why? Because it's an absolute truth. There are absolutes mathematically, there are absolutes spir- uh, 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 scientifically. Did you know there are absolutes spiritually and there are absolutes morally? See, that's the nature of truth. It's unchanging, it's never ceasing, it's irrevocable, it's binding, but I want you to see in a Greco-Roman culture, oh no, there's no truth, and that's why today the sexual ethic of the average American in our society is have sex whenever you want, however you want, with whoever you want, and I want you to see what Paul is saying for me and you as Christians, let it not even be named among you. Now, if you're not a Christian today and there are atheists and there are agnostics that come to our church every Sunday and we are so thankful you're here, like Abundant Life needs to be a place where people can come grow in their faith and other people can come find their faith, hey, we're glad you're here. But listen, if you're not a Christian, a Christ follower, what I'm saying really isn't for you. Do whatever you want to do. Now, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. I will promise it's not gonna end well for you. The wages of sin's gonna catch up to you. It's a universal truth. It's binding. It's unbreakable. It's for you too. But as Christians, listen, we're called to something different. No, it's not the Hannah B theology. I can do whatever because Jesus loves me. No, love is not a license. I'm called to something greater. Listen, God's not trying to keep something from you. He's trying to give something better to you. You say, I don't know. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. And that's really what it comes down to. We've abandoned God's authority. So consequently, we've entered into a time of moral anarchy. And anything goes mentality. Yeah, try that when you go home today. Do you know why the highway department puts a yellow line here and a yellow line here and says keep your car between this line and this line? You know why they do that? Because if you decide to drive outside the lines, it's not going to end well for you. Well, I want to be able to go where I want to go and I want to be able to drive wherever I want to drive. Go ahead, try that. You may get away for a little while with it. You may get on down the road with it, but eventually it's gonna end in a horrible destruction. And that's the nature of sin. He puts lines in our lives, not to oppress us, but to protect us. And we are living at a time in society where we're throwing off these old, outdated, antiquated biblical values. Oh, no. We think that book is outdated. It's antiquated. And I would submit to you that the social science is in. What I'm saying is not some preacher's propaganda. This isn't Pastor Phil's rhetoric. This is the social science it is in. You understand that because we've abandoned this moral worldview that comes with the Bible, we are the most advanced. Addicted generation in the history of our nation. Oh, we're becoming enlightened. We're free. No, we're not. We're going into captivity. We live at a time of soaring suicide among America's teens and twenty-somethings. And did you know where the suicide rate is the highest ever? Higher even than among the teens and twenty-somethings is middle-aged men. For the first time, the life expectancy of the average American has gone down three years in a row for the first time. You know why? Because we're killing ourselves at higher rates than ever. Oh, but we're free, aren't we? No, the social science is in. Soaring suicide rates. Addicted generation, the most ever in our nation, STDs at a higher rate than ever among America's teens. The teens, one in four, 25% are carrying an STD because we worship at the feet of Aphrodite. We're not free, we're going into captivity. And I want you to see the reality that marriage and sex are sacred to God because they are a symbol of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, it makes sense that Satan would want to hijack whatever God says is sacred. Why does God put boundaries in our lives for sexuality? I'll tell you why. Because everything God wants us to learn spiritually, we cannot see. He gives us a picture physically of something we can't see. So, we're going to get to Ephesians 5 here in a little while, and we're going to see in verses 22 through 33 that marriage is a picture, it's a symbol of Christ and his bride, the church. It's meant to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and you and I. So the husband we're going to learn is a picture of Christ and the wife we're going to learn is a picture of the church. So marriage and and sex is sacred to God for this reason because it distorts God's picture in any other capacity. And that's why it's sacred. Because there's a picture, there's a symbol God is painting in marriage of the relationship we have with Jesus. Yet it's been so distorted, so destroyed in modern America. And this is why God is trying to woo us by warning us Hebrews 13:4 marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. He's saying listen marriage is honorable and listen sex is not dirty to God sex is holy. It's a picture Of the intimacy, the oneness between Christ and his bride, that you and I. 34 times in the book of Ephesians, you see this phrase, in him. We are in him. And then Paul flips that on its head in the book of Colossians and says, not only are we in him, but he is in us. And so sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is a picture of that intimacy and that oneness that we can have with Jesus Christ as his bride. And the sexual union is a picture of that oneness that we have in Genesis 2 Adam said she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh guess what that's the very place from Genesis 2 that Paul's going to quote in Ephesians chapter 5 speaking of our relationship with Jesus Christ we are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh you see we are his bride and we are his body and all that's being pictured that's the theology of marriage and you can see why society wants to distort marriage and distort sex because it's a picture and anything that God wants to do, Satan counterfeits it too. So the question is, what is marriage? It's what it comes down to. And this is not a hard one. They came to Jesus in Matthew 19. If you're taking notes, jot down Matthew 19 and verse 4. They came to Jesus in Matthew 19 and verse 4, and they asked him specifically about marriage. And guess what he said? Have you not heard? Really, you're asking me this? You need to ask me this? Have you not heard that in the beginning God created male and female? That's how Jesus defined marriage. Male and female. And I want you to notice he quotes from Genesis two when he says the definition for me and you as Christians, he does not appeal to culture, he appeals to creation. And that's why God's definition is fixed. There's no other definition of marriage in the eyes of God except a man and a woman. Now, our society can do anything they want with marriage because it's more than a sacred institution. It's also a secular institution. As a secular institution, our government can do anything they want with marriage. And they have Frankly, I don't really care, but I'm trying to tell you as a Christian, there's only one definition. There will only be one definition from here to now and forever. It's male and female because it's a picture of Christ in the church, and any other definition of marriage destroys that picture of Christ and his bride. This is why polygamy is a distortion of marriage. You know why? Because Christ does not have multiple brides, he has one bride. This is why same sex marriage is a distortion of the picture God is painting in marriage, because Jesus is a bridegroom and he's not married to another bridegroom. Now, I know what people say. I know what people will say about me. I know what they have said about me. Pastor Phil, you bigger, you bigot, you hater, you hate people. Yeah, I'm a hater. When did we get to the place where we can't just disagree with each other without hating each other? Let me help you understand, if you don't understand, what, what is it, I mean, you're a hater, you're a bigot. That is nothing more than a bully tactic that is meant to silence anyone they see as the opposition. Anyone they see as the enemy. You're a hater, you're a bigot. It's meant to intimidate, it's meant to silence, it's meant to manipulate, and I just want you to understand up front ahead of time that I won't be bullied, I won't be intimidated, I won't be manipulated, I will preach the whole counsel of God's word without compromise. And I know what's at stake. I know my calling and I accept everything with it. But you need to know, I'm not trying to become the next Christian celebrity, I'm not worried about my popularity, and I'm not going to preach this lollipop theology of modern Christianity. I'm gonna preach the whole counsel of God. Let me tell you why. Because I love everybody. I love you and I care for you. And I remind every preacher here, any preacher that might be listening, that James chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that we will receive the stricter judgment. We will be judged by God. The bar is higher, and it's how we handled the word of God. Hebrews 13:17 says that as your pastor, my calling is to watch for your soul as one who will give an account. One day I'm gonna stand before. For God, and give an account, not just of my soul, but of your soul. And I care about your soul. I don't hate anybody. I love every single person. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be going here today because there is nothing in it for me. We love you too. Well, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> We all need a little love. <laughs> I want you to see the reality. Here's the charge. Here's the charge. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He says, Preach the word. It's the calling on my life. And I want you to see the problem. When I say as the church goes, so goes the nation. 80% of American clergy, 80% of American churches no longer believe the word, so they don't preach the word. To become a cut and paste theology. We're gonna keep a little here, we're gonna cut out a little here. I want you to see the absolute arrogance. It is arrogant. these pastors and theologians and these churches that have redefined the historic tenets of the Christian faith, like marriage. Like, I I don't care what our government does with marriage. Hey, if I wasn't a Christian, it would change my worldview too. I know what I am apart from Jesus. I know what I am. You know what it says in Romans chapter seven and verse 18, the greatest Christian, the apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived said this in Romans 7, 18, all that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Apart from Jesus, there is no good thing in my flesh. I am capable of any sin known to men. I have never committed adultery, but apart from Jesus, there's an adulterer that lives in me. I have never habitually looked at pornography, but apart from Jesus, there's a pornographer that lives in me. Hey, gentlemen, listen carefully. Ladies, you listen too. Pornography is not just a man issue. 30% of porn addicts are women now too. It is an absolute septic type thing that has happened in American society let me tell you something some of you think I'm so holy I can't relate if you only knew I'm trying to tell you the truth I'm not better than you I don't look at pornography can I tell you why it's not because I don't think I wouldn't like it I don't look because I know I would I've never had same-sex attraction but there's a homosexual lives inside of me too all that is in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing I know apart from Jesus what I would be I'm trying to tell you in all honesty that I'm desperate for Jesus and you are too because we're all made of the same junk that means we all deal in some way with the same junk one person's sin nature leans toward same-sex attraction let me tell you about my sin nature Because I'm no better. Apart from Jesus, had God not intersected my life at 21 years of age, let me tell you about the decisions that I was making that was taking me in a direction that would have landed 25 years later at a destination. Today, I would be a drunk, divorced adulterer. That's who lives in me. I'm not, but I could have been. I would have been. No better than anybody here. Listen, I have for 28 years been a one-woman man. Now before you clap, you need to know the truth. I've been a one-woman man and it's not because I married the only beautiful woman in the world. (laughs) Because for as long as I can remember, I have loved women. I started chasing girls in kindergarten. All of them. I never saw one I didn't like. Ladies, relax, you're safe, okay? Let me tell you why, because that five foot four Krista, she is dangerous. She would kill me, all right? Fear is a great motivator. Well, let me tell you the real reason you're safe. I'll tell you why. Seriously? Because that's what I was, but because of Jesus, this is now what I am. I'm not that anymore. Because it's about more than Sundays. What do you do when you're facing temptation? What do you do when you're struggling with sin? Listen carefully, it doesn't matter what sin, it doesn't matter the temptation, you deal with it in the same way. It's called consecration, it's called the crucifixion. Walk in love, Ephesians five two, As Christ has loved you and given himself for you as an offering and a sacrifice as a sweet smelling aroma. It's the Romans 12.1 sacrifice. You become a living sacrifice. Instead of self-satisfaction, you choose sanctification instead of self gratification. You live for God's glorification. You choose the crucifixion. I am dead to self. I'm dead to sin. I will not do that just because it comes natural. Listen, just because something is legal or something feels natural doesn't make it moral. Because I know left to my own what is natural if I were to follow that path, is immoral. The problem is we have preachers who won't preach. I was in Washington this week, I sat with various high-level elected government leaders in in our Congress who are godly and they're fighting the good fight. Christian people in high levels of government and guess what they're telling me? Politicians, you know what they're begging? Preachers to preach. Here are politicians. You know what they're saying? There is no legislation. What we need is a revival. We need awakening. We need the Spirit of God. These are politicians and government. Talk about becoming a Greco Roman culture. One of them said, Pray for us. This town hates Christians. Which goes to show the intolerance of the tolerance movement, the hypocrisy. of the whole tolerance movement. How little tolerance they have for people like you and me who simply believe what Christians have always believed. And the arrogance of the modern church to think, well now we, we can redefine marriage now, we can define human sexuality. You know, those 2,000 years of church history and those Christians that came before for 2,000 years, they were all wrong, but now we've seen the light and we got it right, how arrogant, Mr. Preacher. James 3.1, you're gonna stand before Jesus and there's gonna be a strict judgment. You better get it right. When you, when you hold the word of God and you preach the word of God, you better have the whole counsel of God, Mr. Theologian. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Here's where we live. Scratch my ears, Mr. Preacher. Tell me what I wanna hear, Mr. Preacher. And it's the lollipop theology and the hot tub religion. Jesus died to make you happy. No, Jesus died to make you holy, holy. He died to redeem you from sin, penalty. We've got preachers scratching itching ears. Can I just be honest with you? Never trust a man that will not talk about your sin. He does not care about your soul. All he cares about is your money. And the average pastor in America, I'm telling you, makes an unspoken, unwritten agreement with the people that I will never say anything that's going to make you do anything or change anything. And in return, you just keep giving enough money to keep the doors open. That's it. I just want you to know up front, I'm not trying to become the next christian celebrity. I am not worried about my popularity. I want you to understand in the end, I love you enough to tell you the truth because it's the truth that will set you free. And one day you're gonna stand before him and give an account of your soul, and I will too. And they turn their ears away from the truth. This is where we now live and turned aside to fables. We are living a time of great delusion. There is a delusion. We live around people they are delusional. A delusion has fallen over our society. One of these pastors I was with this week in D.C. pastors a church on Times Square in New York City tells me his 11-year-old grandson came home one day and said, "Grandpa, I'm the only boy in my entire class that's still sure I'm a boy." These are 11-year-olds. It's delusional. This is the age where even science doesn't matter anymore. Pure emotion wins the day. Be whatever you wanna be. I can do whatever. Be whatever. Quoting Jesus, words in red. Have you not heard that in the beginning God made male and female? In the image of God created he them. Who do you think is behind this distortion of God's image? Coming off this platform a few weeks ago, I preached. I met a lady for the first time out in our foyer. She said, Pastor Phil, thank you for what you said today. For 30 years, I lived a transgender life. And then about five years ago, my pastor said to me, I was living a lie. And at first it made me mad, but I knew inwardly he was telling the truth. And I repented of that sin. I know God made me a woman. Coming off this platform, met a young man after third service right over here. He said, Pastor Phil, thank you for what you said today. I'm gay. And I was here a year ago when Dr. Christopher Yuan spoke. Dr. Yuan is a professor at Moody Bible College who for years and years and years was an open homosexual living a gay lifestyle openly. And then Jesus intersected his life. And he said something so powerful, profound this day, it changed this young man's life, changed mine too. I remember him saying, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, it's holiness. See, the opposite of pornography or promiscuity is not abstinence. You can be abstinent and not be holy. The opposite of promiscuity is not abstinence, it's holiness for whatever you're facing in life, for whatever your temptations, whatever your sin is. Dr. Yuan never said, I now am attracted to women. I never heard him say that. What he said is, I'm no longer living in self-gratification, I'm living for God's glorification. You see, it's more than Sundays. We're a nation of fables. We've turned to fables. I want you to see as a child of God, no immorality in our walk, no immorality in our talk. It shouldn't be in our lives, it shouldn't come off of our lips. He says neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, this is where I'm under conviction. This is what God's dealing with me, I'll tell you why. My mind is so carnal, I have lived in this depraved world so long that I can quickly go places mentally I shouldn't go and sometimes even comes off my lips. You know the little innuendos? Little jokes with the double meanings? That's what he's talking about. This is why, hey, I got no use for the bachelor. I got no use for the bachelorette. I know, I'm just out of touch. You know what? That's Paul saying, we should be out of touch. Touch not what is unclean. Yes, we should be out of touch. He goes on, he says, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you. Stop being deceived with empty words. That's what it is, empty words, we're being deceived by lies and empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God, that's what it says, not the love of God. Listen, if you're living in immorality, you're not under the grace of God, you're under the wrath of God. If you're harboring sin, you're not under the love of God, you're under the judgment of God says, so it comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, let it not, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Do you understand that as Christians, we don't live in a world of 50 shades of gray? There are no 50 shades of gray. To God, there is no gray. There's light, there's darkness. There's clean, unclean, holy, unholy, pure, impure. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. What are we watching and putting in our minds? This filth and uncleanness. Oh, it's not that bad. You know what we've done as children of light? We have adjusted our eyes to see in the dark, so now what we see are just Shades of gray. Oh, we wink at sin, call it a sitcom. It's not that bad. We watch Hannah B fornicate. We're entertained by the very things that nailed Jesus to the cross. For it's shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed, are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Our lives are not to blend into the darkness, our lives are to shine the light on the darkness. And that's what I've tried to do today. So what are we to do? Well, Paul says, "Here's what we do. Here's the remedy. Number no, one, we need we need to wake up. Need to wake up." He goes on, he says this in verse 14. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We need to pray for awakening in the church. We need to pray for awakening in the body of Christ. Here are these politicians, I'm sitting with them. Guess what they're praying for, an awakening. Pastor Phil, preach, tell others to preach. Pray for an awakening spiritually. As the church goes, so goes the nation. We need to wake up. Jesus, wake up a slumbering church. Jesus, shake us and awaken us. We've been asleep too long. He says, wake up, and then he says, rise up. He says, listen carefully. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We don't need another reformation. We need a resuscitation. We need a resurrection. We need to pray that Jesus, you'd blow upon us the breath of life, that the Spirit of God would begin to resuscitate and revive the body of Christ, who has all but died. Would you join me in that prayer? A prayer of awakening and revival. And it begins with repentance, repentance of sin, turning from darkness to light. And then he says, you need to wise up. You need to wake up, you need to rise up, and you need to wise up. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Some of us have played the fool. We have believed the lies, the delusion. He says, Be wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I want you to see the story of various young adults who are part of our church who have passed from darkness to light, from death to life, because their story can become your story. I was in the darkness of drug and alcohol addictions with a future only headed towards death or prison. I was in the darkness of just really bad anxiety, um, loneliness, um, perfectionism, and lust. Uh, When I was living in the darkness, everyone else's opinion of me mattered so much. Uh, It all depended on what I did in my last start. And I was the lord of my own life. I had so much pride in my heart that Uh, I was hardened towards God. I was in the darkness of sexual sin, feeling accepted when I had sex with my boyfriend. Before I knew Jesus, I was in the darkness of addiction, the addictions of marijuana, sex, and pornography. I was in the darkness of using sports and relationships to solidify my self-worth. I was in the darkness of sexual sin and seeking male attention. I was in the darkness of trying to earn love and acceptance from others, um, doing things because I thought that's what everyone was doing, like I had something to prove, or I was trying to earn friendships or boyfriends. So I tried to find my value in my relationships, my reputation, success, and I was really just living in the darkness of a sexually impure relationship. Partying, and really just self absorption. Before I knew Christ, I was just so frustrated from the abandonment and the daddy issues, left from my pops, leaving my mom and I to fend for ourselves. It was a darkness that I thought I'd never get out of. I saw the light of Christ, y'all. It was bright at first, and I ran from it. But I came to know that I have a Father in Heaven that would never leave me. And that light's been changing my life ever since. And then I found the light of Jesus. And through redemption and healing, He made me new, and He showed me my worth in Him. But then Jesus and His light came into my life and uh, renewed me and reminded me that I'm a child of God that's been redeemed and that no one else's opinion matters to me, but that I'm loved. But then I found Jesus, and He made me realize that my worth didn't have to be found in anything or anyone else but Him. But then I found the love of Jesus, and His light gave me that love at no cost to me at all. But then I found the light of Jesus, and He has given me sobriety and a bright future but then I found the light of Jesus and he began to really make me more free, content, um, enough, and pure. But then I found the light of Christ and uh, he changed my heart and he broke me of my addictions and I can honestly say that my heart has been changed by Jesus. But it wasn't until I made Jesus the Lord of my life and the light of Christ entered my life and freed me from these things It wasn't until then that I put Christ at the center of my relationship, that my life had purpose, and that I was no longer a slave to all of these things like insecurities, and I became complete in Christ. But I found the light of Jesus, and he made me whole as I experienced his sufficiency. Revival begins with repentance. I want to take a moment right now before we leave and get on our knees together, humble ourselves before God. You don't have to, but I'm going to. If you can physically, if you can't, that's okay. God knows the posture of your heart. And just begin to pray for repentance in your life personally, repentance of sin, compromise, Pray for revival, awakening in the church. Not just our church, yes, our church, but the church. That the Spirit of God would move. Begin to break up the hardened hearts inside of us all. God, that you begin to break up this fallow ground. That you'd begin to till up the soil, the seedbed of our hearts. And we claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, forgive us of our arrogance, our pride, self-idolatry, the desire to live for self instead of the Savior. Help us choose the cross daily and die to self, die to sin. Jesus, we plead for awakening. We plead for revival. The Spirit of God would begin to blow upon us the breath of life. This church and churches all over this land, that you would bring the church to repentance that we'd repent of this distortion of grace, that we'd repent of this prosperity lollipop theology, that we would walk out what it means to be a Christian is more than Sundays. We would flee from sin Fight the good fight of faith. I pray blessing God in heaven upon every person here today. That God, your gracious hand, your face would shine upon each of them. I want you to know if you're struggling with sin, there are a lot of others here that are too. And we all do in some way. There are groups here forming, wellness groups we call them. You can't do it in in a solo, you can't do it in anonymity, you do it in community, we have communities that are forming. Recovery groups from pornography, from addiction, If you wanna know more about that, we have a Next Steps Death, you can get more information. There are gonna be people at the front, in between services, you wanna know what it means to be a Christian, you wanna give your life to Jesus, you wanna walk this out with someone who's gonna pray for you, there's gonna be people down here in front that love you, that care about you. I pray God in heaven, your gracious hand be upon us all as we leave today. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to love you in that sacrificial kind of way, in Jesus' name.